We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've seen is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The dignity of man. What happens to people when they get locked up in prison for a long time? I've heard it said that America's justice system has been almost completely transformed into a system of mass incarceration. Just huge, huge numbers of Americans are in prisons right now. Does this work? Is it good? I sense it's starting to change. Even some presidential candidates are starting to talk about it. And you know, if they're talking about it, that means some real pressure is coming from the people. You know, growing up, I always thought prisons performed two key functions. One, to protect good citizens, good people, from those who may be a danger to us, and to rehabilitate uh, those people so that they can become better citizens. Somehow, it seems, the system has gone absolutely haywire. Our guest today, James Kilgore, is author of the new book, Understanding Mass Incarceration, a people's guide to the key civil rights struggle of our time. It offers the first comprehensive overview of the incarceration system put in place by the world's largest jailer, the United States of America. James Kilgore, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you very much for having me, Bert. It's a pleasure. Well, James Kilgore is a writer, an educator, and a social justice activist who teaches and works at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He spent six years in prison, during which time he drafted his three published novels. He lives with his family in Urbana, Illinois. Well, again, thanks for being with us. This is quite a title, Understanding Mass Incarceration, a People's Guide to the Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time. How did you come up with that title, like The Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time? That says a lot. What was your purpose in writing this book? Well, maybe I can just back up and say what prompted me to write the book was my experience of incarceration, where I spent six years watching huge numbers of black, brown, and poor white people coming through the prison gates with typically with these incredibly long sentences, 20 years, 30 years, life, life without double life. I had one friend that was doing 555 years. And I began to ask myself what was behind all this because I myself didn't really quite understand the process. But when I got out of prison, I started reading and researching this and discovered this was something called mass incarceration and that there was a whole historical process behind it. And the civil rights component comes in 
when we come to the notion that people with felony convictions now are not really full citizens. In 2012, almost 6 million people were denied the right to vote simply because they had a felony conviction on their record. Um, people with felony convictions, particularly drug offenses, can be banned from living in public housing, can mm. be banned from access to food stamps, to other kinds of public benefits. So there's a whole host of rights of citizenship that are denied people simply because we have a felony conviction. So the notion that you've you know, done your time, that you've paid your debt to society, has disappeared. And what we're seeing now is people now beginning to push back against that and pushing for the rights of people with felony convictions to be able to vote and have access to opportunity once they've settled their score with the legal system. Yeah, as you describe it, it sounds like, I mean, the notion of justice when it comes to these things, of rehabilitating people. But then, as you say, once they've paid their extremely high debt to society, and, and it's been a high price, not being able to vote, not being able to participate. I mean, I happen to know uh, somebody, a, a friend of mine's son, who uh, had a very unfortunate uh, accident. It certainly wasn't intentional. Uh, and two people were struck by his car, and now he has a felony conviction. He's 18 years old. He's going to have to live with that the rest of his life. What what good does that do? I mean, he, you know, it's just it's amazing to me. Now, the term mass incarceration, I wonder how often people have even thought about that term, mass incarceration. What do you mean by that term? Well, I think... Mass incarceration means that it's just being done on a massive scale. So if we look at the number of people in prisons and jails right now, around 2.2 million, that's about four times the number who were in a similar situation in 1980. The U.S. is 5% of the world's population, 25% of the world's prisoners. The U.S.'s incarceration rate is about four times that of the U.K., which is a high... Uh, which has a high rate of incarceration amongst European countries, Hmm. ten times the rate of Norway and Japan and so forth. So the U.S. criminal justice system, by ramping up incarceration, has really become an outlier in the global world of of criminal justice. Hmm. And not only has it impacted the lives of millions of people, but it's also cost huge amounts of money. So the amount spent on corrections has risen from around $6 billion in 1980 to over $80 billion a year today. Wow, that is huge. And I guess that's one example of what people must mean when they talk about American exceptionalism. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. <laughs> now, crimes are committed by people of all social strata and ethnicities. We have one of the biggest criminals in Bernie Madoff, there are plenty of people still working on Wall Street whom I would imagine might be worried about being prosecuted for some of the fraud that was committed before and leading to the financial meltdown of 2008. Now, demographically, who really are the imprisoned people? Do they represent uh, a similar cross-section of people who actually commit crimes? Talk about that, if you would, please. Okay, well, I like to think of the process of mass incarceration as uh, founded on mass criminalization and mass decriminalization. The criminalization meaning that the pressure has been brought to bear on poor people in particular and on African-American and Latino yeah. uh, sectors of, the, of that poor population. So we have 
policies like the war on drugs, policies mm. of, like what I've called a war on immigrants, which has focused extra policing on these particular populations and has led to an incredible racial disparity. So nearly 40% of the people in prisons across the U.S. are, are black, even though they're about 14% of the general population. Latinos with a similar presence in the general population are almost 30%. So clearly, uh, poor communities of color, and I emphasize mm -hmm. poor because the majority of people who are in prison have lower levels of income, lower levels of education, lower levels of job skills before they go to prison. So it's really targeting the most marginalized sector of the population. And mass incarceration has ramped up the number of offenses and the penalty for those offenses with harsh sentencing laws and so forth. But I also noted decriminalization, meaning that certain actions by corporations or, yes. corp or corporate executives have become decriminalized. So the point that you referred to around, let's say, the financial crisis or the housing crisis, well, part of that was precipitated by the... Uh, overturning of the Glass-Steagall yes. Act, yes. which prevented banks from engaging in financial speculation with people's savings accounts, but that was decriminalized, therefore leading to the possibility of people of people's pensions and life savings and so forth being prey to predators mm. and uh, marketing subprime loans and so forth. Well, wow, that is interesting. That just how effective, <laughs> how much effect the overturning of Glass-Steagall was, and how it hurt so many people. And there's only one candidate I know of actually who's calling for the over, you know reinstatement of Glass-Steagall, and that is Bernie Sanders. I got to get a little bit in there, uh, but uh, <laughs> it, it you know the fact that that has caused so many people to suffer so much. Crimes, what crimes are about, it seems to me, is if people are hurt and they need to be made whole again. That's allegedly what the justice system is about. But that decriminalization of uh, you know, what the banksters have been doing, I don't see a lot of prosecutions on that. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest today is James Kilgore, author of the new book, Understanding Mass Incarceration, A People's Guide to the Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time. On May uh, 20, 25th, 2014, the editors of the New York Times uh, issued an opinion. They said, quote, the American experiment in mass incarceration has been a moral legal, social, and economic disaster. It cannot end soon enough. How would you summarize this American experiment that they were talking about? Well, I would summarize it as a shift, not only in the criminal justice system and the way in which the law enforcement is carried out, but really a fundamental shift in the purpose of government and the attitude of the populace toward the most marginalized sectors of the population. So one of the things that happened in the early 1980s with the declaration of the war on drugs and the ramping up of, of the militarization of the police is that we began to treat people who were at the margins, people who might be homeless, people with mental health issues, people with substance abuse issues, we began to treat them with uh, criminal solutions rather than with health care solutions, rather than with public housing solutions. So we saw major shifts in resources from public housing and other kinds of social welfare programs into corrections, 
into policing. I know in some of your previous shows, you've talked a lot about the militarization of the, of the police, the provision of military-type weapons, and the kind of way in which many police are trained to go into communities on a warlike footing. Yeah. So we've really changed the, the notion of empathy, the notion of second chances, the notion of providing people with opportunities has really been set aside, and we instead we hear this mantra of public safety, we hear fear-mongering, that we have to be afraid of young black males wearing baggy clothes or sagging pants. All of these kinds of things create a different mentality and create a them-and-us kind of attitude between perhaps a a majority white middle class and an underclass, which is overwhelmingly people of color. Boy, yeah, you really nailed it there. And you mentioned earlier about about immigrants, how you know immigrants have been uh, swept up in this, and you know certainly uh, throughout the uh, oh last century and a half or so. Uh, immigrants have have not been favored. One of the reasons there was prohibition on alcohol back in the uh, late twenties was because uh, immigrants from from Germany and Eastern Europe were were drinking, and you know the nativists, the uh, waspy type people here, uh, didn't want that, so they you know made laws against that. Talk about the the what what you see going on with, with immigrants and how that's part of this whole mass incarceration thing. Yeah, I think that's a that, that's a really important point, Bert. That the fact that most people tend to kind of separate immigration from the criminal justice system or even immigration detention as something separate but it's really part of the same kind of mentality how do we how do we welcome or how do we interact with people from other countries coming to the united states do we do we welcome them or do we build walls and send border patrol there to to intimidate them out of out of coming into the country and then once they're here and working and contributing to the community how do we how do we respond to to the, to their presence do we co- have them under constant threat of deportation or do we try to accept their good faith that they're here for economic reasons they're here to build families they're here to contribute and so forth so We've seen particularly post 9-11, but it even predates that a little bit, but particularly post 9-11, we've seen much more fear stirred up around immigrants simply because the people who carried out 9-11 were immigrants of some sort, but mm. we've seemed to have tarred everyone with the same, with the same kind of yeah. terrorist brush, and we've seen, once again, more money going into border patrols, more money going into policing immigrants, more building of immigration detention centers, mm. and to top it off, those that immigration detention area has been a key profit center for private corporations, private prison providers. Oh, yes, and we'll definitely get to that uh, subject, private prison uh, operators, and uh, they're not leading the entire thing, but it's, it's, a, it's a definite... Lee, a, a part of that. Well, actually, let, let's go uh, right to that. The uh, the private prison system. They uh, uh, let me just see here. They they've you know they're not the the whole problem, but uh, they to to they need to to do a good business. They need to fill up their jails. The firms like the Correction Corporation of America and GEO Group, uh, you know, they have certain niche markets. They're involved in immigrant detention. Uh, but I wonder if you could talk about other aspects of the criminal justice system that these companies are expanding into, and 
just talk about the, the effects of the private for-profit prism system. Well, as you pointed out, the, you know, the private prisons are a small component of the system. Right. They control about 9% of the prison beds overall, but about 40% in immigration detention. So that has become their market niche. And one of the things that they do is that they hire lobbyists in various state legislatures to push for harsher immigration laws uh-huh. in order to ramp up the the arrest of, of, of immigrants and, and channeling them into uh, immigration detention centers, which are uh, largely privately owned. Mm. We also find that they that BI Incorporated, which is a subsidiary of the GEO Group, the second largest private prison operator, they have a five-year, $375 million contract with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, to monitor people who are on uh, awaiting judgment in immigration cases. Mm. So it's become a cash cow in different forms. Oh, my forms. goodness. <laughs> yeah, so that's... But they're, but they're also expanding into areas of reentry, so they're beginning to run reentry programs, beginning to run day reporting centers for people who are released from prison, because I think they see that perhaps there's going to be a wave of people who are going to be uh, released, and the authorities may not be particularly prepared to handle that, so it's now another opportunity to make profits for them. So they win if they lock people up, and they win if they release people. <laughs> Isn't that swell? <laughs> oh, I love oh, God that system. You know, just everything is about making more money. It's it's just I mean for the top, you know, the, the working people, people who are struggling. You know, just throw them into jail if they get into some trouble. It's, it, I would think it would be cheaper, uh, not only in terms of money but societal cost, to actually build low-income housing and to help people find jobs and not be stuck in this, you know, terrible pit of, of despair that oftentimes leads to crime. I had, People don't seem to be talking about that very much, about alternatives to this mass incarceration and investing differently. What do you hear about that? Well, I think this is an incredibly important point because mass incarceration from a pure financial or economic right. policy perspective makes no sense at all. As you as you pointed out, public housing would be cheaper than, than building prisons. It, in states like New York and California, it costs about $60,000 a year to keep someone in prison. That's roughly what it costs to go to Harvard. Mm. Nell Bernstein has done a lot of research on juvenile justice. She says that the average cost of keeping a juvenile locked up for a year is mm. about $88,000. Mm. So how can this be economically uh, sensible? So you have to conclude that there's something else behind this, that there's a political agenda about how we treat people who are at the margins, about oh. how we deal with problems of poverty and all the kinds of survival activities that it generates. And at the local level, we've seen the enforcement of this with a lot of very harsh ordinances, things against things like sleeping in public places, against even feeding people in public places, aggressive panhandling. Right. All these kinds of things keep poor people at bay and under the constant threat of, of being incarcerated. But certainly we could reallocate the funding in a different way, but that's not the political agenda. The political agenda is to enhance the security and the policing roles of the state and also to make sure that people at the margins don't have much of an opportunity to uh, 
resist. Hmm, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Right. We've changed a little <laughs> bit from there. <laughs> and uh, you, we're talking here, the book is called uh, Understanding Mass Incarceration, and what you were just talking about, uh, author James Kilgore, is how it's uh, the key civil rights struggle of our time. It's, it's that uh, subtitle, very important in there. Now, spending in on prisons and jails has, has grown a lot, as you said, from $7 billion in 1980 to $57 billion in 2000, uh, more than that uh, ever since 2007. Now, my understanding is the crime rate has, has gone down, has it not? And, and if so, doesn't that prove that in- incarceration works to keep the crime rate down? Well, if we actually look at the crime rates, crime rates have kind of fluctuated since we had the introduction of mass incarceration. So they went, uh, in the 1980s, they went up, they went down. But from the mid-1990s, they've been steadily, they've been steadily decreasing, but yet we're still increasing the number of people we're incarcerating. So there's no real specific connection. And all the kind of numerical studies that people have done let's say, um, looking at the incarceration rates in particular states, we find that the crime rates in some states have gone have gone up when the incarceration rate has gone up. We find that the crime rates have gone down when the incarceration rate has gone up. We find that there's not much statistical correlation between levels of incarceration and crime rates. And if we look at European countries, which have now have a relatively similar incarceration rate, uh, excuse me, relatively simple, similar crime rates to the U.S., except for in, ca- in the case of murder, the, you know, the incarceration rates are incredibly lower than here. So it, there's, there's not a, a real connection between those two that can be established. It, it's a bigger political agenda. And I think, as you pointed out, it's also become a profiteering agenda where these companies have developed a, you know, a political force to make sure they continue to get their income from incarceration. Well, yeah, it does seem to be ruling everything, making money. You know, governments, <laughs> it's, it's not supposed to, there's supposed to be other organizing principles besides a certain few powerful corporations making more and more money, you know? Now, you write about the standards by which people are swept up into our massive mass incarceration system. There's, I want to talk about the dr- war on drugs, but before that, there's what you call broken windows policing, three strikes sentencing, the school to prison pipeline, recidivism, and as we've been speaking about prison privatization. I wonder if you could take just a couple of minutes to define what these offense categories are. I'm, I'm, a lot of them I'm not familiar with. Well, I think let's let's look at the sentencing piece first. I mean, there's been a number of changes to sentencing laws which have greatly extended the time people are serving for specific crimes. So the three categories under that are the three strikes laws, which in many states, if you have a third felony, you get an automatic life sentence. Um, the, The use of what they call truth in sentencing, which means that if you have a sentence of 10 years, you're going to do about 80% of that time, regardless of what you do while you're in prison. So there's no incentive to enroll in education programs or job training or anything because you don't get any any uh, time off. And then probably the biggest one has been mandatory minimums, where judges are simply given a, a table of sentencing for specific crimes, and they have no leeway in terms of how they 
determine somebody's sentence based on the con- circumstances of the crime or their personal circumstances. If they, if it's their first offense, if it, if they're responsible to, for supporting family members, if they've mm. you know been a pillar of the community for thirty years, the judges are still forced to follow a formula which says, for example, if you have so if you have one ounce of heroin, you have to do a minimum of twenty years, mm. and and there's no there's no moving away from that. So that has really tied the hands of judges and kept people being funneled into this funneled into the system. So I think that that and that's why we see people in in prison with sentences like 555 years and so forth and judges often say, "Well, I didn't really want to give that sentence, right. but I had no choice." And certainly Democrats are just as uh responsible uh to blame uh for this uh uh, you know, three strikes, you're out. Just taking the uh, prerogative away from judges. They, you know, they wanted to look tough on crime too. I mean, certainly Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill worked together on this, and boy, a lot of people have been paying huge, huge prices for the lack of, of flexibility on on the part of the uh, the judges. And people could be doing. There's alternative sentencing which could work a lot better, and. We ta- you talked a little bit about the uh, well. I did want to get back to the broken windows policing. I hadn't heard of that. Mm-hmm. What, what, is, what is that? That seems to be uh, something that's going on a lot. Well, today. Broken windows is is a sort of zero tolerance policy in urban in urban policing. So it came about from a couple of sociologists in the early 1980s, and their theory was that you had to stop crime before it starts. So if you go into a neighborhood and you see broken windows, you see. Uh, graffiti on walls, you see junk cars laying around, you have to prosecute the people who are committing these petty crimes because if you don't, it, it, it's the thin end of the wedge of violent crime. So that's the theory, mm. and that's what's informed a lot of the way in which municipal policing has been, has been carried out and the ways in which the crimes of poverty um, and homelessness have, be, have, have escalated. And that, and, and that's been really the inspiration for things like the stop and frisk policy in New York, for example, where you know they were stopping and frisking hundreds of thousands of people, most of them young African Americans mm-hmm. and Latinos, mm-hmm. just on principle that this is somehow going to stop crime. So it really recreates the neighborhoods once again as as places of of combat and confrontation and punishment, rather than having a policing philosophy that kind of builds relationships with with people and tries to solve the community problems without the use of force. And I do see a bit of that these days. The police are recognizing more and more that you know they need to work with the community. I mean right now the the status of, you know, the police, the militarized police with just every weapon system you can think of, you know, whatever versus the enemy, i.e. the people isn't really working particularly well. So there's starting to be some action on that. And, and of course, part of, you know, a major part of filling up our prisons in this mass incarceration is the war on drugs. War on drugs. How well has that worked? You know, we see more and more people overdosing from heroin. Heroin is a huge problem. It's been massively illegal for decades. And the idea is, well, if you make it really illegal, uh, people are going to stay away from it. It'll be a, a significant disincentive. You don't want to go to jail, so you don't do heroin. That's, but everyone knows today it's a complete, utter failure. Tell us about the war on drugs in actual practice. Well, I think the war on drugs has been a very targeted war. It's really 
disproportionately targeted African-American community. Right. And so if we look at the research, the research shows that, for example, African-American youth and white youth use drugs at about the same rate, buy drugs at about the same rate, sell drugs at about the same rate, but African-Americans get prosecuted something like seven times more frequently than, 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 than their white counterparts. So it's been very selective. The enforcement is, is very selective and, and geographically targeted. So, for example, in the community where I live, we have a county of 200,000 people. We have a university campus of 42,000 students and a black population of 24,000. But yet 70% of the people in the jail are black, many of them there for drug use. And although anyone who has even the slightest knowledge of the college campus knows that the biggest concentration of drugs is on that campus, mm. that doesn't get policed in the same way. So the war on mm. drugs has been a very unequally enforced uh, law that has been used to over-police poor communities of color. Mm. Mm. And it's done good? I don't think so. I don't see that it's worked at all. You know, another part of, you know, crime... People like to feel safe in their homes. You know, a person's home is his or her castle, and you don't want your stuff stolen. Um, but as in other wars, ransacking and stealing enemy property, looting, has become the norm. But we're not talking about uh, the the people who break in here. It seems that the drug squads themselves oftentimes kind of legally rob and ransack and steal the property. How much money comes in annually from this legal asset forfeiture, whether or not somebody's convicted? Um, yes, th- this is true, that, that police in most communities have the right to seize what they call the um, the illicit uh, results of illegal activity. So this doesn't even just mean houses, it may also mean cars yes. and cash, and quite often, I mean, in some, in, in some communities there's cases where the police simply take the, the policy of, if they find someone carrying a, a, a bunch of cash in the car, they assume that it must be from drug activity and they simply seize, seize the money. Um, so this is, this is, I believe, over the course of 20 years, the, the national total is somewhere in the order of about $15 billion worth of assets that have mm. been seized through, uh, through asset for, forfeiture at the local mm. and the, and the uh, state level. That's really amazing to have the, the police doing that. I mean, even if people aren't convicted, they, I've, I've seen uh, some really nice cars <laughs> being auctioned off, and, and people's property is uh, at great, great risk from, from these things. And we talked a little bit about the, uh, the fear that was ginned up after 9-11. Uh, you know, it, it was used to intensify the war on drugs, as you talk about. Tell us, if you would, about the 2002 Super Bowl ad and following newspaper ads linking recreational drug use to complicity in terrorism, ramping up the fear and resulting in a lot more arrests and uh, mass incarceration. Right. We had, these, we had these TV ads which basically had uh, pictures of people who were buying drugs, and then that was juxtaposed to terrorists with with uh with armaments and the implication of these ads was that they were 
getting them the money to buy these guns from the drugs that you purchased. So you are somehow complicit in in buying um, in promoting terrorism by buying by buying recreational drugs. So the the implications of that also were international because it began to promote the idea that the war on drugs was being had its roots in Mexico and in Latin America, so it once again tied it into the immigration issue. Hmm. And that that was a very orchestrated campaign to ramp up immigration enforcement and also the war on drugs. And certainly we have uh, people talking about uh, building some impenetrable wall between here and Mexico to keep people... Donald Trump's dream. Yeah, Donald Trump's dream. I mean, never mind the fact that after Katrina, a lot of Mexicans came here to help the people who were suffering from the effects of Hurricane Katrina. That's a... That's right. I, you know, and but, but this, it seems, I mean, let's face it, if the immigrants were blonde-haired and blue-eyed, you think people would be talking about it? I don't think so. I think this. I think the discourse would be quite would be quite different. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd say thing. so. Uh, tell us about the kind of prisons known as supermaxes. Who are they intended for, and, and what is life like inside a supermax? And between 2011 and 2013, inmates at Pelican Bay State Prison, Stage Three, hunger strikes, eventually reaching 30 thousand strikers were they was that somehow tied into this notion of a supermax well supermaxes are special you know maximum security prisons where basically everyone there is held in solitary confinement um so you're you're there in your cell 23 or to 24 hours a day you have no human contact in many instances you have no access to phones in some of these places even if you get even if you receive letters you have to read them on a screen you don't actually get to touch the oh, touch the letters oh, um, oh. and if you have if you're allowed visits you're going to be in shackles and visiting through visiting through glass so it's really a dehumanizing experience and i mean a lot of people aren't put in these places because they commit the most you know notorious crimes i mean people like ted kaczynski the who is known as the unabomber mm-hmm. and people like that are in in supermax prisons but we also find that a lot of state prisons have supermax units in them and they are used for disciplinary purposes and quite often people can land in these places for minimal offenses or even suspicion of being a gang member perhaps having an argument with a guard they get mm. a disciplinary infraction and they're put in these places and sometimes kept for ten twenty thirty up to forty years people were held in pelican bay uh, secure housing unit, which is essentially a, a, a supermax, and the hunger strikes that you mentioned have actually borne some fruit this very week because the courts have have taken the decision that keeping people in these conditions is against the rules, against the law, that it violates international human rights standards as well, and they're going to force the California state yes. prison authorities authorities to move most of those people out of solitary confinement and into uh, a less restrictive environment. But this is a real blight on the criminal justice system, the fact that we're keeping, I think there's something like 8,000 people in supermax kind of conditions across the country, which is, which is really well beyond any acceptable human rights standards by 
international uh, regulations. Ah, but we're Americans. We're exceptional to those rules, right? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> then there's solitary. I'm, I'm seeing a lot more movement. There's a recent New York Times editorial about solitary that there's, that's been used a lot, I guess. It's, it seems that judicial attitudes about solitary confinement are starting to change. What do you know about the use and abuse of solitary confinement by prison ad- administrators? How, how arbitrary might it be? And, you know, is there guidance on this? Are there rules about this? Or is it really just up to the particular prison administrators? Well, there's rules and guidance, but then there's practice. So, I mean, we've seen recently that, for example, that there may be rules and regulations about the use of force by police, but that still doesn't mean that those policies are carried out when when people have street confrontations, particularly with young African Americans. So it's similar in prison. The virtually every medium or high security prison has a solitary confinement unit. They usually call it administrative segregation, where you're sent for punishment, and you can be sent there for any length of time for any kind of offense or disciplinary violation. So it could be getting into a fight with somebody. It could be being found with contraband in your cell. I mean, there's a whole range of of behaviors that can land you in administrative segregation, which is typically 23 hours a day in the cell, often in solitary confinement, you know, by yourself. So mm. it's it's really draconian punishment, according to international studies. After about 15 days of solitary confinement, people begin to have major kinds of psychological reactions to it. People that I've people that I've met who have done time in solitary say that they they are making the case that they have PTSD, post traumatic stress. There's legal cases in the court for that. They indicate that it becomes very hard for them to actually communicate or even to remember how to talk after they've spent months and months simply by themselves and also surrounded by other people around them who are really losing their mind and screaming and yelling and smearing feces on the walls of their cells and so forth. So this kind of you know dehumanizing environment really doesn't serve any political purpose, but it's, it's really about maintaining that climate of fear inside these institutions. Mm, climate of fear. And I, I am one of those probably, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people anyway who have seen the wonderful movie at least a couple times, The Shawshank Redemption. There was a, in that movie, I hope you've seen it, there was a sickening amount of abuse and arbitrary violence by guards and administrators. From your perspective, how close to reality was this fictional movie? Um, I, I think, yeah, I think there's a fair amount of reality to it. I mean, I think arbitrary violence, arbitrary enforcement of the rules is kind of the general lay of the land in, oh. in the prisons where I've served time. Jeez. Certainly, uh, if, you know, if the guard has a bad day, hmm. you know, you got a chance of, of being put in the in administrative se- segregation or the hole, as we call it. I mean, you, and you can just say the wrong thing at the wrong time, and all of a sudden you have a disciplinary hearing. You also find that that there are some guards who are prone to who are prone to violence, who are prone to you know to beating people, to spraying them with uh, with pepper spray, a whole range of disciplinary kinds of things. It's it's a very violent kind of environment, and you never know exactly what might what might come next. Part of that fear of the unknown is what's 
is what they play on when they have the threats of of sending people to administrative segregation where they're not going to have visits and they're not going to have maybe access to a television or other kinds of entertainment that kind of takes the edge off the harshness of incarceration. Oh, if you just tuned in, this is uh, quite a discussion here we're having on uh, Keeping Democracy Alive. Bert Cohen here. We're talking with uh, James Kilgore, author of the new book, Understanding Mass Incarceration, a people's guide to this key civil rights struggle of our time. And one of the most uh, widely recognized racial biases in our legal system has been the discrepancy in sentencing between crack cocaine and cocaine powder. We all know that uh, crack cocaine was more used by African Americans and regular cocaine powder was used by more well-to-do white young people. What, what really happened when Congress tried to address this and pass the Fair Sentencing Act of 2010? Did it fix the problem, or do inequalities still exist with regard to uh, discrepancies in sentencing between crack cocaine and cocaine powder? Well, originally the, the uh, sentence for 100 ounces of cocaine powder was the same as the sentence for one ounce of crack cocaine. And the shift in the sentencing law reduced that ratio to 13 to 1, which hardly looks like equality. Um, So uh, it's very difficult to understand what kind of thinking goes on when you see this huge disparity, and one that's so quantitative. It's so clearly discriminatory, and the best that you can do is to bump it down to 13 to 1. It, it kind of, it, it's kind of emblematic of the kind of irrationality that people and policymakers have been, uh, have been victims to when they've been dealing with these issues of criminal justice. There's just an incredible blind spot in logic and, and any, any semblance of justice, and I think that's just symbolic of, of that kind of mentality. Well, of course, logic and racism aren't necessarily the same thing, now, are they? <laughs> uh, of course, you know, in this, this war on drugs, those guilty and sentenced to prison, you know, they're, they, they get hurt. You know, that's the idea, to, uh, to separate them and to punish them. But they're not the only ones adversely affected. What, what, do you, what can you tell us about the hidden costs imposed on an incarcerated person's loved ones, their family? What happens to them in terms of you know, being good members of society? How, how have women and their children been affected by this? I guess they become tools for the police in the war on drugs. Uh, and and you, know, there's even, you discuss uh, uh, some police tactics contributing to what many have called the criminalization of motherhood. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you raised that issue, because as, as we might know, 90% of the people who are incarcerated are men. So yes. oftentimes all of the attention when we're talking about mass incarceration focuses on those people. But in actual fact, the communities where the majority of those men come from have been really decimated by mass incarceration. And... Uh, Eric Adora has coined the term million-dollar blocks, which are hmm. blocks in urban areas that, where the state spends more than a million dollars a year incarcerating the people from those blocks. Oh, and the people remaining behind are largely the mothers, the sisters, the, da- the, you know, the daughters, the spouses, and partners of, of the people who are locked up. 
So they have to deal with the, the absence of those men. They have to deal with the extra financial burdens, yes. the extra emotional burdens of, of parenting, the extra burden of, of making, making the community function. But then there's also the financial costs of supporting a loved one who's incarcerated. They typically the prisons are sited in remote rural areas, mm-hmm. so it's a long distance journey, very expensive right. to go and visit your loved one. Prison phones, which are the main source of communication, have been hijacked by corporations like the like Securus Technologies, and people pay exorbitant phone rates, sometimes up to. $15 for a 15-minute phone call. Mm. Um, so they're, even their capacity to communicate via phone becomes a, a, an accessible burden, an, um, an excessive burden. I mean, I interviewed a woman who said the only way a friend of hers could manage to pay the phone bills was to go out and steal things from stores mm. and sell them back. Mm. That's what she did to pay her prison phone bills. So we're really putting people through the ringer, and I think these communities also at the same time have seen a cutback in welfare provision, cutbacks in educational quality, and increasing in intensity of policing. So it's made life very difficult for people in those communities, as well as the, as the people who have been incarcerated from those communities. Boy, is that dumb policy. I just I, That's just so outrageous. It's, it's amazing to me. And I've heard about those incredibly expensive phone calls. And you're right. I mean, people, the prisons are lo- located way out there. And there, there's no public transportation. A lot of times, the family members don't have cars. It's it's just punishing so many. You know, it's not. It's these ripples that just go out on and on and on. And talking about, you know, how perhaps innocent victims, women in particular, pay a high price. The situations of domestic and sexual violence. Talk about how they expose women rather than their abusers to the criminal justice system and how this pattern of violence is perpetuated within prison itself. Women who are victims of domestic violence, particularly low-income women, they're, they're sort of caught in a, in, a, in a crossfire because perhaps the only remedy available to them is to call the police. But then when they do call the police, they themselves are often criminalized or treated like a criminal or they're seen by the police as a vehicle for for investigating more criminal activity in the community. And since women, you know, bear disproportionate responsibility for looking after children, police can often threaten women with taking away their children if they don't cooperate with them in investigation. So bringing in the police in a system in a situation of domestic abuse may then prompt these women to be open to some kind of questions about what's happening in the neighborhood, what is their brother doing, what about their cousin who's incarcerated, etc., etc., and all of a sudden they become the targets of investigation. So it becomes very difficult for women to find ways to deal with domestic violence in the absence of community-based programs set up to address this. And at the same time, they also, while they want to escape domestic violence, they also may not want to subject their abuser to a 10 or a 20 year right. term in prison for what they've done to them. So they're really caught in a very difficult situ- situation and they, and they become prey to uh, aggressive police tactics at times. Oh my. 
Hmm. And, you know, it, it, they're breadwinner. They, they'd like to get their breadwinner out of jail so that they can then doing that. And talk about bread. I had never heard of something called neutral loaf, N-U-T-R-A-L-O-A-F, uh, which tell us about that. As you write, it is well suited to both punishment and cost cutting. What is neutral loaf? I don't think I've had any. Yeah, I don't. Th- I don't think you'll see it in your uh, five-star restaurants, and I haven't <laughs> seen it reviewed in any of them. To say, uh, really enjoyed the Nutrilope we had last night. I mean, Nutrilope is a concoction that they've that they've uh, put together in some prisons to as as food. So it's basically they throw some eggs, some some soybeans, and whatever else is kind of left over in the re- in the refrigerator. You know, mush it up in some kind of food processor and. And bake it into a so-called meatloaf, but it's a meatloaf without meat, and it's pretty despicable. I mean, I was never in a institution that served Nutrilof. I could say that I had some food that was probably a not too distant relative of Nutrilof, but it's really a, a further way of dehumanizing people. And you know, people who are serving this or preparing it are simply saying, well, we're obligated to give people a certain number of calories per day, but we're not obligated to make it tasty. (sighs) How wonderful. You write that mass incarceration could never have gained traction if it didn't benefit some powerful people, unquote. Who who benefits from the prison system? And and before you you answer that, I got to tell you, a few years ago on this show, I interviewed uh, an author, Douglas Blackman, he wrote a book called Slavery by Another Name. He described how private industry, after the so-called Civil War, worked hand-in-glove with law enforcement to create new employees, and I, I use that a term advisedly, who were really enslaved to that business interest until they died. Over 60,000 imprisoned people in the U.S. now work under contract to outside companies. What are these workers generally doing, and and what ideas have some entrepreneurs come up with to take advantage of prison labor, like slavery by another name? Yeah, I think that that's a that's a wonderful book and a wonderful description of that particular historical period. Um, I think it's important. I mean, I want to talk about that for a second in a second, but I think it's important to recognize that. There are differences in the way in which that operates today, and a lot of people have the notion that our prisons are simply a chain of sweatshops and and slave labor camps and so forth. And as you've pointed out, we only have about 60,000 people who are under contract to outside uh, sources, and less than 10,000 of those are are in the employment of private corporations. Most of those are, are, are government-contracted workers. So out of 2.2 million, it's really a very uh-huh. small percentage of people who are engaged in this. But nonetheless, um, there are probably the biggest kind of paid labor is working on prison farms, and particularly in the South, there's prison farms that sell produce on the, on the open market. But there's been other kinds of innovations where in federal prisons they've, they've opened up call centers, so, uh, ah. so people who are incarcerated are maybe answering your, you know, your next call to Comcast or something. I don't, mm. I don't know. Um, and we, and we also have um, uh, a lot of telecommunications assembly is done in some federal prisons. There's federal print shops. There's, there's a, there's a range of, of, of economic activity in, in these prisons. But for the most part, people in prison are not gainfully employed. 
they are a warehouse. There's very little for them to do, mm-hmm. and the notion of rehabilitation has uh, has has virtually disappeared, yeah. and we have few education and training programs in these institutions as well. And let's let's talk about alternatives. I mean, th- th- we have this system, and it's like the drug war itself. It's a complete and utter failure, and has harmed millions and millions of people, and not accomplished anything positive at all. Transformative and restorative justice models offer an alternative to our current system of just plain punitive justice. Tell us about some models for alternative justice. What is, and including in that perhaps, if you could talk about victim-based restorative justice and what, what is transformative justice, uh, and, and maybe I guess there's some skepticism about the concept of restoring justice. If you could talk about that, please, James. Okay, these are these are big issues, and but I think that that they're really important. I'm glad you've raised them because they're really at the heart of changing the system. Right. Obviously, we need to change laws. We need to reduce the mandatory minimums. We need to cu- we need to relax the drug laws, legalize drugs in some instances, and so forth. There's a whole range of things that need to happen. But most importantly, if we're going to make a, a significant change, we need to change the mindset. What we have at the moment is a notion of retribution behind our justice yes, system. Yes. If, if I steal your laptop, you call the police, the police come and get me, I get put, I, you know, I get put in prison or jail, I do my time, and that's, and that's, that's, the, that's the process. But there's no, there's no idea of restoring, no idea of communication between me and you, no idea of rebuilding that relationship. So restorative justice tries to deal with those relationships. So instead of bringing in the police, filing criminal charges, Yes, you're going to track me down. We're going, to ha- we're going to sit and talk. Why did I steal that laptop? Don't I understand that you need that laptop for your work? But don't I understand the implications of my actions and that I must accept some responsibility for, for, the, for those actions? So through some kind of process of dialogue and communication, we are able to try to prevent the action from repeating and, and build a, a relationship between the the person to whom the harm has been done and the person who has done right, the harm. Make them whole, sure. But, but what, what, what alternatives can there be, you think, to this mass incarceration, you know, that really achieves what we talked about in the beginning of protecting society from people who may do danger and rehabilitating people? Are there models th- that can be done? What are you, you've seen it, you know, a lot from the inside. And w- what, what alternatives can there be that perhaps people might start talking about? Well, I think the, I think the main real alternative, you know, rests in that changing of mindset and following that change of mindset with a reallocation of resources. Some people refer to this as justice reinvestment. That is, we need to, we need to get people out of prisons and jails, but we need to put them into communities and into situations where they have chances to succeed. So the more, the, the conservative kind of, uh, critics of mass incarceration kind of see this kind of see cutting back on prison and jail numbers as a way to save money. I don't think getting rid of mass incarceration is going to save money. It needs to reallocate the money that's gone to corrections into the communities that have been hit hardest. It needs to go into education, into job training, into public housing, into more effective public health systems and so forth. All of these things need to be 
need to be bolstered so that when we release people from prisons and jails, they have some pathway to success. At the mm-hmm. moment, if we simply release people from prisons and jails without right. restructuring the social terrain in which they're entering, we're setting them up for failure, and we're setting those communities up for all kinds of horrible, you know, horrible conflicts and social disasters. And, of course, you know, if, if people are not desperate. Now, it's not always desperation that leads people to do things that end up in jail. But let's face it, oftentimes it is. If if you talk about uh, uh, justice reinvestment, maybe, I, I can't help but believe that that would keep a lot of people out of, from going to jail and prison in the first place, if they have more opportunities. Absolutely. I mean, let me just give an example. I work in a reentry program. I work with people in my community who are coming home from prison. Okay, so this is a typical scenario. Someone, when someone's released from prison in Illinois, they're given $10. When they're released in the middle of winter, when it's minus whatever, they're given a a hoodie. And so they come into our office. They don't have an ID. A driver's license or a state ID costs $20. They don't have $20. They don't have an ID. The public housing won't accept them because they have a felony conviction, even if their mother is living there. She can't have him come in and live with her. So all of a sudden, we have a whole set of circumstances that become almost immediately overwhelming in the absence of support. Mm. But if we had reentry programs that were there to provide, to channel people into public housing, to make sure they had IDs, to, to help them prepare for jobs, to give them some clothes for a job interview, give them some computer skills in order to be able to file online applications, which a lot of people can't do because they don't have computer skills. All these kinds of things are what can facilitate a change in the community by releasing people into the community. But in the absence of that, we're putting people onto the streets and setting them up for failure. Wow. The book is called Understanding Mass Incarceration, A People's Guide to the Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time, Our guest today has been author James Kilgore. Thank you so much. Very informative. Maybe we can really do something about this. Thank you. Thanks very much, Bert. It's been a great pleasure talking to you.